Good afternoon, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine's Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Welcome to a Springtime Coastal Conversations featuring stories about sea-run fish. Last Saturday, May 21st, was World Fish Migration Day, a global celebration to create awareness about the importance of migratory fish and free-flowing rivers. On the coast of Maine, we often refer to springtime migratory species as sea-run fish, species that are known for swimming or running up our rivers and streams from the sea in order to spawn. Many of you will have heard of Atlantic salmon and alewives, or even blueback herring, but do you know about rainbow smelt and tomcod? These lesser-known sea-run fish species are just as important to healthy coastal ecosystems, and historically, they've all featured in the lives of Maine residents for sustenance, income, and recreation. Smelt and tomcod populations are believed to have declined in recent decades. That's the bad news. The good news is that the restoration of salmon and alewife habitat benefits all members of the sea-run fish family. Our show today features a compendium of smelt stories, plus a few about tomcod and alewives too, from interviews conducted over the course of the last year in an effort to document the traditional ecological knowledge of people who harvest, interact with, and observe sea-run fish. We'll start our show today with Chris Johnson, the ecology manager with the Passamaquoddy Tribe Sepayak Environmental Department, who'll share a bit about the tribe's research and restoration work. Then we'll catch up with Danielle Frechette, a marine resource scientist with Maine Department of Marine Resources Bureau of Sea-Run Fisheries and Habitat. And then Frechette will then help us introduce the interview project that her intern, Sean Beauregard, a student at the University of Maine, carried out last summer to document people's knowledge of smelt. Finally, we'll share clips from those interviews. So you'll hear the voices of John Melquist Sr. from South Thomaston, who started smelt fishing as a kid before the 1970s, using hook and line and through the ice. Then Kurt Sonneson, a retired coastal warden and marine patrol officer who covered the coast over the years from Booth Bay Harbor to Gouldsboro. Then Sharon Morrill from Damascotta Mills, an outdoors woman and watcher of wildlife, including sea-run fish like smelt and tomcod. Followed by Dick and Max Grimm, a father and son duo from Yarmouth who dipped for smelt together when it was still permitted in their zone. And finally, Lawrence Moffat, a retired commercial lobsterman who spent his free time in the 1970s spearing tomcod with friends. Let's get on to the show. 
So we wanted to start at the beginning of the human relationship with smelt and sea run fish in this land that we now call Maine. And so we wanted to connect with Maine's tribal community, who we know has had a relationship with sea run fish since time immemorial and still very much today. And so we're thrilled that you can join us, Chris. Um, so if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself and your and your tribe's many connections to the fisheries. Yeah, I could give a little bit of background of how I sort of uh, gained more interest and how it evolved. Um, I've lived here my whole life. Uh, I am a quarter past my body. And I had a really, you know, fortunate um, environment and circumstance of having a river flow right behind my house. Uh, so that's kind of where it all started um, at Little River. Um, where I got to see, you know, migratory sea run fish um, every spring. Um, and so that was really fortunate. And then it, over time, kind of evolved eventually into working for the tribe and then gained interest in the environmental department through a summer youth program. Um, so that really helped um, get me more involved. And yeah, and then I eventually landed a full-time position with the tribe here um, at Zibag Environmental Department. Uh, and I've been here for about seven years now, uh, working on different um, restoration efforts, uh, mostly dedicated towards the Skudik watershed. But we have several other watersheds that we monitor too within the Passamaquoddy homelands. And um, can you help us with a little bit of geography? So where the Scudic watershed is, and also in the bigger picture, what do the Passamaquoddy view as, the, as their homeland? What's that sort of extent? Yeah, it's a pretty vast range of, of land. Um, and some of these um, areas of land probably would have been, you know, intermingled with other tribes within what we now call the state of Maine. Um, it kind of, it ranges um, all the way down to the Union River, uh, all the way up to the, well, St. Scudic, uh, which is called St. Croix uh, River. Um, and, and even beyond that too, uh, it's a pretty vast amount of land. And then everything in between, we're kind of monitoring efforts with serum fish and water quality and we have a brownfields department. Um, so that's kind of the, the area in which we, we monitor and which we call Passamaquoddy homelands. Tell us a little bit about your work related to sea run fish. Sounds like alewives and, and other species. Yeah, we're, we're looking at uh, quite the range of different species. Uh, but like I said, we, we heavily focus on restoring alewife um, and you know blueback heron and shad would be another big one especially in the past couple of years um, other species are rainbow smelt tom cod american eel um, we do have initiative to you know maybe start working more with sturgeon as well um, and We've worked a little bit with uh, trout too, sea run trout. There's, there's quite a few species that we're, that we're monitoring at this time. And 
And um, what's the, how are these species doing? I mean, that's a really big question, but sort of getting a sense of, of what your observations are um, and, and sort of what you're hearing from the elders in terms of changes that have, hap that have happened over time with the species that maybe is driving some of the work that you do towards conserving them and their waterways. Yeah, um, I would say mostly around species within Passamaquoddy homelands have declined significantly, uh, especially alewife, um, you know, shad, Atlantic salmon, which I didn't mention earlier, uh, has pretty much been wiped out in a couple of these, you know, different rivers like the Skudik, um, like Boyden watershed at Little River. Um, you know, we don't know if they ever spawned up in the Penamaquan, which is near the reservation too, but um, there's, you know, restore, restoration efforts at the Denny's River too, and Denny's watershed uh, that have a remnant population of Atlantic salmon there. So a lot of these species um, are significantly uh, in decline, but I think it's just been more recently that you've seen a couple of these species increase in numbers. Um, we are up to, at this time, 600,000 for a count of alewife uh, on the Gudic watershed. So um, significantly more than there, than there was, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, at one point, I'm trying to remember the year now, but they, at one point, there was only 900 fish left on the Skudik watershed. Um, so there was, um, you know, great efforts at that time to allow passage. Um, so there was a cooperative effort with the federal government and the tribes to allow sea run fish to uh, spawn in their historic spawning grounds. And that ended up happening. I, I want to say it was 2013 that, that happened. Um, and then it allowed um, alewife to, to migrate above the main stem of the river where they need to, where the vital spawning habitat is, is at. Um, so yeah, a lot of these species, I mean, some of them are non-existent, uh, some of them are, are remnant, but we're, you know, we're really trying to gear towards restoring them to historical numbers and we're a little ways off of that, but I think it's looking somewhat optimistic. I think Atlantic salmon are gonna be a little bit more challenging to restore just because of there's only remnant populations left. Um, but there is some hope for, for other river herring and other species, I think. And um, let's talk about uh, smelt and tomcod for a minute. Tell us a little bit about um, what you can about those two species. Yeah, um, well, my experience with smelt has actually just been more recent than, than like alewife or some of the other species. Um, but, you know, just for myself anyways, my friend and I, like maybe like five or six years ago, would you know, we would fish for them. Um, and just, and before that, I didn't even know they, they were uh, spawning fish. So yeah, it was really cool to, just to learn about a new species and harvest them and, you know, um, 
and then later on is kind of when I wanted to implement them more in, in our within our department and do more research and do more surveys. Um, and then yeah, Danielle kind of reached out with DMR and um, wanted to kind of know you know the importance of the tribe too, and so that kind of um, I got more, way more insight when I kind of reached out to some of the community here um, to learn about uh, rainbow smell a little bit more and some of the kind of the conclusion after some conversations, um, you know, I've heard before where it, it was a, it was a time of, of, you know, just survival, right? You went out and you harvest species that run during different times of the year. And it was, yeah, it was, it's about survival. Um, people went out and, you know, would all go together and harvest um, rainbow smelt and then bring them back to the community. Um, I guess they weren't really uh, fish that was stored much though. Like it wasn't like preserved or uh, throughout the rest of the year. It would just be kind of like eaten during that time when they ran where other species, you know, maybe different where they were like salted and preserved and, um, so yeah, I got I gained a little bit more insight about other people here that fish for smell, which I had no idea. Um, and today, you don't see as many people, I would say, fishing for smell. I think maybe there's others that just don't know about them, like myself. And there's not as much interest as there used to be because a lot of these people that are in the community that are, that tell me about it are, are elders, um, and not as much of the the youth or younger crowd. So that's kind of why we, or I wanted to start implementing, you know, it into our department. And we, you know, try to get people involved with citizen science effort like DMR and just try to create more awareness, I guess, of smelt and their restoration. Um, it seems like uh, their populations around here are doing okay on a couple of the streams that we've seen, um, we kind of go out and do a survey and follow some of the protocol that DMR has sent over and we measure like their egg beds. Um, and it, some of these streams actually seem to be pretty healthy. It's good to know that they are here because other parts of Maine, they're not doing as well. So maybe, you know, we, we would definitely like to continue to monitor them to make sure the same thing doesn't happen like Southern Maine. And, um, and then there's areas that we're planning to focus on on the SCUDIC um, and maybe implement new um, research techniques with um, eDNA. And so there's just there's a bunch of priority areas that we have from the Boyden watershed at Little River all the way up to the SCUDIC watershed. It's kind of it's actually considered the same watershed. Um, so we would like to just like look at all the streams, um, you know, from, from Boyden all the way up to the Scudic River um, and maybe, you know, determine whether there are populations of rainbow smelts you know, spawning in, in those areas. Uh, this year we'll be going out doing visual observation, but if we could just grab some samples on every stream and, and maybe indicate whether there are populations there, we can it'll better, better help us uh, restore those species in those areas and that habitat. Um, so that's what we're gearing towards next. Very cool.
Um, just to wrap us up, I was wondering if you had sort of a, a parting thought regarding if there was anything that that you in the work that you do or your colleagues at the tribe, if there was sort of something you want people to know about the natural resources that you're working so hard to restore and protect. Um, I would say it's when you boil it down, it's it's really just going to be important to survival of Peskaramukari people and, and all people to, to restore sea run fish, especially alewife, which are keystone species. Um, it's, um, we'd really like to see it rebound because um, our name is, is Peskaramukari, right? And we don't see any Peskaram, uh, which is Pollock in our bays anymore. And so we know keystone species will help other species like ground fishery species like uh, cod and pollock and haddock. Um, so at the end of the day, restoring sea run fish uh, are going to benefit other species and other mammals and, and hum you know, humans. And um, we really need to do that in order to see healthy ecosystems again to, to support all people. Um, I think we're getting there, but I think we've got a little ways to go though. But Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been really great to talk to you for a few minutes and, and hear your thoughts and perspectives about sea run fish and smelts and alewives. I um, really appreciate your time. Yeah, appreciate you having me. I was talking there with Chris Johnson, the ecology manager with the Passamaquoddy Tribe Sapayak Environmental Department. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. This is WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Our show today celebrates the annual sea run fish migration happening in so many rivers and streams throughout the state right now. About halfway through my conversation with Chris Johnson of the Passamaquoddy Tribe, he mentioned Danielle Frechette from Maine DMR, that's the Maine Department of Marine Resources, who had reached out to the tribe to learn about their relationship with sea-run fish in general, and smelt and tomcod specifically. Frechette coordinates a Rainbow Smelt Citizen Science Program, where volunteers contribute important data on the fish they observe migrating up and down their neighborhood streams. So next up, let's hear directly from Danielle about the DMR's work with these species and the volunteer program that she runs. Sure. Thanks, Natalie. Um, I am Danielle Frechette. I'm a marine resource scientist with the Maine Department of Marine Resources, but I'm specifically with the Bureau of Sea Run Fisheries and Habitat. And our Bureau's mission is to protect, conserve, restore, manage, and enhance sea run fish populations and their habitat in all waters of the state that we now call Maine. I work predominantly with Atlantic salmon restoration. Atlantic salmon is a, a federally endangered species. And here in Maine, we have the very last remaining wild populations of Atlantic salmon left in the entire United States. I also work with rainbow smelt and tomcod through a community science program. One of the things that's really amazing about sea run fish is that we can really set the calendar here in Maine by what they're doing. Sea run fish are either coming into our rivers and spawning 
or they're leaving our rivers or they're they're growing and tom cod are also referred to as frost fish or the christmas fish because they're coming into our streams to spawn our coastal streams to spawn right around christmas and people used to go out and fish for them and put them into their christmas stew um, so they have a really uh, neat historical connection, um, as well as uh, help us tell the, the changing of the seasons. Rainbow smelt are the first sea run fish of the spring to return to our streams to spawn. Um, they are a super cold loving fish. They actually make an antifreeze protein in their bodies. So they can come into our coastal rivers in the winter start eating a lot of food to get ready for reproduction. And then in the spring, once, once spring hits, they head up those coastal streams. So they're really that first fresh source of protein for birds and mammals and people. That's very cool how you can really kind of set your seasonal clock to the return of these species. It's a neat connection. Um, okay, so um, the the Department of Marine Resources, where you work, has um, a special interest, I know, in all sea run fish, um, and in particular, these, these species. Um, tell us a little bit about that work and what the goals are. So we have a really huge coastline here in Maine. If you stretch it out, it's longer than the coastline of California. And there are around 300 streams where we know that smelt do or have spawned historically. So that is a huge, huge amount of ground to cover. Um, and we just don't have the number, the, you know, bio enough biologists to really hit the ground and cover those streams in an annual, on an, in an, you know, every year to be able to effectively monitor where and when smelt are spawning. And so we have recruited the help of community scientists to help us collect those data. Um, we're, we're working with community scientists from the New Hampshire border all the way up to um, the Scudic River, or also known as the St. Croix River, to document smelt spawning. The smelt, we'll, you know, we'll see them in larger, larger rivers like the Union. We also see them in streams that might just, you might just consider a trickle that you could easily jump across from one side to the other. Wow, that's very cool. And so you are working with volunteers to find them when they come in the spring, the smelts? Yeah, we are. So this is a, a joint effort between the Nature Conservancy, the Bureau of Sea Run Fisheries and Habitat at DMR, and then the Downey Salmon Federation. And the survey itself has a really interesting history. It, it started out in the early 70s as a DMR survey. It was repeated in the early 2000s, again, as a DMR survey, but then the Downey Salmon Federation worked with DMR to make the protocol accessible to, to citizen scientists. And they ran the survey there up in the Downey area for a few years, fine tuning it. And then this, this joint effort between DSF, TNC and, and DMR launched in 2020, right at the start of the pandemic, um, in an effort to take this, this community science approach and make it coastwide so that we can use this approach to survey our, our smelt streams from really from, you know, York County all the way up to Washington County. And so presumably you train community members to learn how to find the smelt, how to document them. Yeah, so, so we do, we have a, we start out with a training early in the spring, and then uh, the volunteers are trained to go out to their stream either at night to look for the spawning smelt because the adults come back at night. They're, 
they they don't like the light they want to come in the dark because they're you know everything eats them right birds mammals other fish so they want to hide from those you know be protected from those visual predators so they come in to spawn at night so volunteers can either go out at night to look for those smelt as they're spawning or they can go out during the day to look for the eggs that the adults deposit they're also documenting um things like the substrate, what does the stream bottom look like? What are the smelt spawning on? Are there any obstructions that prevent smelt from getting upstream? That could be a natural obstruction like a waterfall or it could be a culvert that's blocking passage. And so these efforts are really helping us to prioritize restoration actions. So where can we improve a culvert or a road stream crossing that will allow smelt better access to those upstream habit to the habitat that they need for spawning? What are your volunteers finding? What are you hearing from them? Yeah, so the smelt spawning runs start earliest in southern Maine. So generally in, in York County and, and Cumberland County, you may be looking around mid-March to mid to late April. Mid-coast Maine, we, we generally start seeing them. They might peak around mid-April. And then as you move further down east, we may not see peak runs until even late as late as May, um, and they may even spot be spawning into June. Oh, okay. And if people wanted to get involved in becoming a volunteer, what, what should they do? They can send me an email at uh, danielle.forshed at maine.gov. Um, they can also look for us on the Gulf of Maine Research Institute's website uh, under their ecosystem investigation network program, you'll find the smelt spawning survey with all the information that you need to, to link to the survey. Um, and I think we can put those links in the in the show notes, Natalie, is that yep. right? Yep, we will definitely do that. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and so I know that you also have been involved with some of our colleagues at Sea Grant in um, doing an oral history project to get some knowledge from local folks, what their experiences are with smelt and tomcod and other species um, in the course of their lives and their experiences as either landowners or recreational fishermen. Tell us a little bit about that project, because we're going to sure. hear some of those interviews later in the show. Yeah, so as, as Chris Johnson said, um, fishing for smelt is something that doesn't seem to be as common as it used to be. And there, there are some reasons for that. One is that smelt fishing is close to, to dip net fishing in southern Maine because the populations are just so, so depleted. So they're just not doing well in southern Maine. And we know that there's a lot of important information, a lot of knowledge, local knowledge that people have about these fish that can help us understand over time when they may have been running, uh, whether there's changes in when and where and how many fish are running. And so we really wanted to get out there now and document some of the stories that people have, people who uh, may be getting older, because they can really help us put our restoration efforts in context. So during 2021, we worked with a University of Maine student, Sean Beauregard, he went out and he interviewed folks from all the way from Southern Maine up to Washington County to gain some of their perspectives and, and learn about their connection to both, not just smelt, rainbow smelt, but also tomcod. 
I think one of the things that the stories give us is that they fill in the gaps. We have smelt spawning surveys from 1971, 1984, 2005, 2007, but we don't have that year-to-year -year local knowledge that somebody who went out and fished that stream you know, every year between 1971 and now. And they're on the ground, they know the stream, they have that sense of place that we may not have. The other thing I would say is that these stories have really shown us the connection that people here in coastal Maine have with these resources. This is a fish, rainbow smelt is a fish that people are going out and fishing, not just for recreation or, or less, it's less about recreation and more about sustenance. And that feels like a really great segue to hearing some of these stories um, from some of your interviewees. Thank you so much for joining us and helping set the context for the rest of our show today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Danielle Frechette of the Maine Department of Marine Resources setting the stage for the interviews and stories we're about to hear. The interviewer, whose voice you'll also hear, is Sean Beauregard. He was a student at the University of Maine who conducted this work last summer as part of a smelt internship with DMR and with Maine Sea Grant. We're thrilled to bring you these stories and voices on today's Coastal Conversations. As you may have picked up, this entire show was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. I'll introduce each clip as we go. So first up is... John Melquist from South Thomaston, who started smelt fishing as a kid before the 1970s using hook and line and also fishing under the ice. Um, so to start, when did you, when did you start uh, smelt fishing? you remember? I probably was 8 or 10, 12 years old yeah. and growing up in Rockland and a lot of people used to smelt. There's a, there's a series of brooks that run down through Rockland. They all come together. Uh, well behind Main Street anyway, and they go under Main Street and come out in the same area where the storage treatment plant is now. There used to just be a big cove there that the smelts came out into. And, but there were a lot of people that were a lot older than me that were always fishing there. And, and that yeah. summer, yeah, just couldn't fish in the winter much there because it was froze up, but we all fished in the summer. And then, oh, I guess back in the 70s when I first went to work for Port Clyde Canning Company uh, in the sardine plant, we used to fish off the sardine plant in Rockland, and we could catch smelts year-round there. And, uh, mm -hmm. With hook and, like with hook and line. line. Yeah. With hook and line, yeah. 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 Um, one thing I was curious about, I haven't heard it, I haven't really heard about it yet, but when you're, when you're fishing with hook and line, like, what are you, what are you using? Are you using, like, a, like bait or lures or... Bait. bait. We're using uh, sandworms, mm -hmm. uh, bloodworms, mm -hmm. and a lot of people will use minnows inch long minnows yeah and that's okay. when i started fishing in tenants harbor 50 years ago we moved to tenants harbor and uh, uh the fellows that introduced me to it down there all use minnows okay i use now i use sandworms or uh, angleworms as far as that goes they'll eat those just as quick and, yeah because uh, especially as it gets colder your fingers get quite cold <laughs> fooling with those little minnows trying to <laughs> yeah. dip them out of the water and put them on the hook and yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah but some people still use them, and they obviously they work. So right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so 
You said, so I, I, one of the things I want to ask, you've already kind of touched on it, but like in what ways do you fish for smell? Are you doing all, all different seasons? Like, well, now the, in, in this zone, there's three zones in the state of Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, this western zone ends at Owl's Head Light, and uh, mm -hmm. we can only fish from, from uh, in open water from the 1st of October till the end of December, and after that it has to be through the ice. Mm -hmm. And you can't dip smelts in the spring like we used to with Nance gotcha. in, in this zone. And the further east you go, the more liberal it becomes. But So here we fish. October, November, and December uh, from the bank, mm -hmm. and then the last few years there really hasn't been enough ice to put a smelt house on right locally right here. Gotcha. Uh, Scotta Mills in the Great Salt Bay, they've put some houses on there, and, and those fellows that rent houses up around uh, Gardner and Bodenham mm -hmm. and those places, they've they've still rented houses, but huh. but we we have not been able to the, the creek in Thomas right below Mount Pierre. It's always been a great place in the winter, but the last two, three, four winters, it's, it's been like a week of ice, and it's it's the, with the forecast and everything, we just didn't bother to put them on because it's just, I mean, it's not that much work, but it's still right. a lot of work for two or three days of fishing. And, yeah. You know, uh, um, like, what do you think of when you hear the word smelt or like smelt fishing? Like, what do you, what, like, what comes to your mind? Like, what do you think of? Uh, good food, <laughs> I guess. I, 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 I a lot of fun. Good food. We, I, my kids were growing up. Uh, we used to go through the ice a lot, and we always had a good time. We, yeah. you know, we'd catch smelts, and and you'd take a frying pan with you, and you could cook smelts up, or take something, right. beer steak or something with you, and yeah. have a little meal, and so yeah. it was a lot of fun. But, yeah, is that yeah. usually is that usually how you cook them? You, you fry them up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems the the most common way. Yeah. Frying. Some people put them in cornmeal. I just dust them with a little flour and salt and pepper and fry yeah. them that way. And, okay. Yeah. Sweet. Um, okay. Then, so, when when do smelt run? Does it seem to change from year to year? And is there like a tr is there like a certain trend going on, like where it's going a certain way? Well, it's it's hard to say. It seems as though that that they're becoming a little later yeah we don't we used to fish when i first moved to tenants harbor which was, was 50 years ago mm -hmm. i lived there for 30 years and i've been here 20 and uh, around the time school started then we'd start fishing and you'd get a few and then it would increase as you went along but now when we start fishing in october usually we don't have much success and there again i'm just talking the st george river mm -hmm. estuaries and yeah uh, um, until into the middle of November, and we usually do pretty well from the middle of November to the end of December. Mm -hmm. But there again, years ago, you could catch them all summer. Right. And I, I, the fishery's not there, we can't even try, so I don't know if, there, if there's any around. Like Rockland Harbor, was, was always, we always fished there in the summer, even, I mean, like I said, when I was a kid, and then, and then in the late 60s, early 70s, we would still fish. There was an old fellow that used to come from Rhode Island, mm. and he and his wife traveled. He was retired from raising oysters down there, and he would come, travel. He'd stop in Rockland, and he'd come down to the siding factory, and he and his wife would fish for smelts mm. for a little while, and then they'd travel on to Canada, and they'd fish for Atlantic salmon, And but he came for quite a few years, and, yeah. and he always was very successful at catching smelts there. Right. So it's, uh, but 
And now, like I say, that's probably a lot of the reason there were smelts everywhere was there was a lot of fish particles and whatever going overboard back in right. the 60s. So yeah. there was a lot more food than there is now. It's just like the mackerel. Rock and Harbor used to be full of mackerel, but I, but I don't think it is now. Interesting. All of the places that I used to fish, uh, someone's fishing uh, and they are catching smelts, but yeah. but not to, not to the degree it used to be. I used, used to be able to go any, about any night you wanted to go, I mean, assuming the tide's right, mm -hmm. uh, you could get, you're pretty sure you were going to catch smells. Now it's yeah. kind of iffy, you know. I, I, well, right here in this brook, I'll go down there some nights and I won't even get a bite. And then on other nights I'll have 25, 30, 40 smells. And, right. And so it's, it, it's, a, it's so a guessing it, game. Interesting. That was John Melquist Sr. from South Thomaston. Next up, let's hear a clip from Sean Beauregard's interview with Kurt Sonneson, a retired coastal warden and Marine Patrol officer who covered the coast over the years from Booth Bay Harbor to Goldsboro, as he talks about changes he's seen in the rainbow smelt fishery and his relationship as a Marine Patrol officer with fishermen. It was not uncommon in the least bit to go down to a brook and you would be 50 feet from the brook and all you could hear were fish flapping. And then you'd get down there and shine a light on the brook and it'd be, if the, the brook was 15 feet wide, there'd be smells so black they were laying on the banks they were trying to get up the streams. And that still happens. I mean, I saw it this year again too. I mean, it just, it just happens every year. And I think there's less pressure on it because people just aren't, uh, the old days, we'd go out on a weekend when smelts were running good, and we could check upwards. Um, we could check upwards of 250 people on the brooks at night, and uh, they were just people were everywhere. But nowadays, of course, you know, things change. Kids don't have an interest in it. And the old timers are kind of getting old, so it's. Uh, I think it's slowing down. But uh, yeah, I've kind of noticed the same thing too. Like uh, I only know a couple people that are my age that really that really do it. And it seems like it's kind of a, it's kind of going away with as the older guys start to go away too, you know. Yeah. Kind of an yeah. older sport. I've seen numerous guys that have. It's funny that would uh, take the grandkids down, you know, and you see like we'd be hiding in the bushes and we'd see one fellow from town used to do it every year. He trooped down, all you hear little voices, and there'd be about seven up behind him in tow, and uh, I said everybody be getting some spouts, and it was yeah, it was a really great recreational fishery um something anybody could do with you know with the price of a five dollar dip that you could go down and have a heck of a time but uh, yeah it is sad it is i think it is kind of going by the wayside yeah uh what did sea run fishermen think about you or think of you and like what was that relationship like between you know kind of the state and patrol officers and and people yeah i i think it's like anything in life it's how you treat people you know, I never had the opinion they had to go down and be a real hard guy unless, you know, use them the way they're using you. And 95% of the people we dealt with were, were just good sportsmen. You know, they were down there, they took their limits, they went home, they didn't leave litter behind. But you always had the element, and it was just a game. You know, some nights we caught them, some nights uh, they got away with it. You know, and I'm sure a lot more got away with it than what we caught. But, uh, you know, it was, it was always a cat game but it was kind of fun you sneaking around in the dark and it's kind of like a 
adult version of Capture the Flag. You know, you, the, they're down there trying to get them to sneak out before you catch them. And, yeah. And, but on, on a whole, I think, you know, we had a good relationship with, with I think, most of Marine Patrol, probably, probably, you know, a very high percentage of, you got to have a good relationship with your fishermen because we're dealing with people making their living and their livelihood. And you, you've got to get along with people. If you don't, you, you just can't function. And, uh, you know, you got to have people that are kind of helping you out here and there telling you, Hey, maybe you got to take a peek at this or, or, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you got to check this or check that. Cause you just can't be everywhere at once. And, and, uh, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have some cooperation. And, uh, I think on the whole Marine Patrol, through the years has done a really good job working with the fishermen, the industry. Um, and uh, I, I think the guys still today, are, I think, are held in pretty high regard. Yeah. Yeah, and it was always kind of funny because it was just it's human nature. I mean, you'd have guys that would go out, you know, three nights in a row, four nights in a row, and nothing was run. And all of a sudden, the night, the fifth night that they went out, the stream was black and they just couldn't stand it and dipped away. You know, we're sitting in the woods at night in the pitch black and working with other guys. We'd sit there sometimes and we'd get laughing so hard we figured they were going to hear us because, you know, these guys were so excited. I remember one night, one guy just kept going, oh, i got to take one more dip, one more dip. And by the time we got done laughing, we were chanting one more dip with them. And when we got out, yeah, he was, he was quite a bit over, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, there's always a lot of funny stories that went with snow fishing. I mean, it was one of those things that was just you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people in the pitch black, and a lot of them were inebriated. I mean, that's the way it was in the old days. It was it was kind of a that uh, <laughs> kind of atmosphere, you know. But, uh, but some of the funniest stories from the years on had to do with smells, and it was just uh, you know. Just one of those kind of industries or recreations. That was Kurt Sonneson, retired Marine Patrol officer, interviewed by Sean Beauregard during the summer of 2021. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. Our show today is about sea-run fish, those species like rainbow smelt who return from the sea each spring to spawn in our rivers and streams. Next up is a clip from Sean Beauregard's interview with outdoorswoman and birdwatcher Sharon Morrill from Damariscotta Mills about her observations of the seasonality of smelt and tomcod, which is also known as frostfish, and other wildlife along the main coast. When you live in, in this place where we live, which is pretty remarkable in that we're between the lake, the brackish water, and Great Salt Bay, um, so there's lots of birds, lots of wildlife, lots of different kinds of fish. So it becomes part of the fabric of the community. First of all, we got involved because of the alewives, the alewife migration. And we we're volunteers for the um, Damariscotta Mills alewife restoration project. We restored the over 100-year-old fish ladder. And as part of that, we started noticing, my husband and I, like just the the fluidity, the, um, the phenome, if you will, of the seasons and w how things flow and come. So um, I think first it's the elvers that show up. And 
following following the alvers are the smelt laying their eggs and they and they lay their eggs all along the low along the rocks of the fish ladder coming up out of the brackish water so that was a natural thing to follow especially that there are all those ice shacks on the lake on not on the lake on the bay during the winter and that's gone on for over 100 years so it ice skate out and we'd get a look at the fishing of the smelts we also grew up in Augusta, Maine, which is on the Kennebec River, and smelt, you know, smelt runs are huge on the Kennebec River, and um, and we're fans of the smelt. <laughs> so we have that kind of experience with smelt, not not actually anything scientific, just you know, just part of growing up. So from the smelts, then you get um, a run, like kind of a a mini run of alewives. It, we almost consider them the uh, the uh, scouts, if you will. There'll be a mini run and everyone thinks, oh, the alewives are in, that's usually April. And then that goes away. And then there's a little more smelt activity. And and in recent years, we've noticed the tomcod. My husband's more familiar with that because he grew up with, his cousins were lobstermen. And, um, you know, I'd heard of tomcod, but I wasn't really aware until we moved to this area. And so then we'd see them well, I mean, they're pretty fast and flipping around and you look and go, oh my gosh, what's that? And well, also we're bird watchers, like they're huge, two huge, um, three giant migratory bird places in the state of Maine. One is Scarborough Marsh, one is Monhegan Island, and the other is Damariscotta Mills. And I think Damariscotta Mills is included because, well, it, before the fish run, before these huge migrations, you know the fish are in because there's a cacophony of birds. You just see like so many different shoreland birds and birds from out to sea and and even the occasional massive seal that follows the alewives up <laughs> will come in under the bridge trestle. And uh, it seems like the kingfishers alert you to things like they're the way they rattle away and then you look up at the kingfisher and then when you're looking up then then I noticed there's fish flopping all over the place and, and initially back in May of 2020 it was quite a big day of flopping fish and first we thought they were alewives because the alewives was running but immediately we knew it wasn't the behavior of the alewife and there were alewives around and that's when my husband got excited and said those are tomcod and and it was, uh, it was spectacular. There were a lot of them. That was wildlife watcher Sharon Morrill from Damariscotta Mills. Next up, we hear the stories shared by father and son duo Dick and Max Grimm from Yarmouth, who dipped for smelt together when it was still permitted in the southern half of the state. You'll hear them make reference in their stories to mast landing. In case you were wondering, mast landing is near Freeport. Here are Dick and Max Grimm, interviewed by Sean Beauregard during the summer of 2021. You know, I had always been aware of, of people dipping freshwater smelts and never, and, and actually did go once or twice in, in college. I went up in the Orrington area with my roommate, um, uh, but didn't realize it in, in, as a shame, then I never really realized that the, you know, the sea runs also run roughly the same time. So happened to be uh, a couple of guys at work that I had uh, hunted with quite a bit and actually uh, freshwater dipped uh, 
said, Hey, you know, we go, we go to upper mass landing and we have a good time. We drink a few beers and we catch a bunch of smelts and something we've always done. Why don't you come out with us? And I did. And we had a real good night. Uh, it, it, the spot at upper mass landing allows you to, to, uh, the, the way the pool set up, you can actually see them with the, with the red light. Uh, so it was less of, of dipping and more kind of chasing and, and hunting them a little bit. So it was fun, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, and, uh, so that, that hooked me and realized that we had several other streams in, in our area that where we could potentially try. So that's how I got started and, uh, got, the, you know, I think I brought the boys with me shortly after. I don't know, Max, if you remember the chronology of it, but it was pretty quick after I went that first time that I think we went together. Yeah, it must have been the same year, you know, maybe one year after, but uh, probably the same year. I remember we went to Upper Mask Landing a couple times and had mixed results. And then um, I think we kind of stopped going there. We ended up checking out a few other spots on the Cousins and the little tributaries to the Cousins. And um, yeah, I think you know, I would say that my dad got me into it as well as, you know, um, my brother was into it. And we had a couple other friends who would tag along or who, you know, knew about it, uh, knew that it happened and were interested in going. So I was pretty much uh, interested in doing anything that would get me outside and, and to explore, you know, the great outdoors. That was kind of, that's how I was introduced to it um, by my dad and um, really enjoyed it. Um, I remember it was the type of thing where we would do it a few times a year. Um, so 2010, 2011 would have been the last time I went. And I think they closed it not too long after that. Yeah, well, they actually shut down the coast, not, you know, the, for, for us, they they prevented us from dipping it. You know, they closed yeah, the, but... the saltwater fishery, I guess. Uh, but for us, it was a little, because of where we set up, which in in really in all cases, we were at the head of tide. So we would only get, you know, and they would come on the incoming tide. So you really only get about an hour at the hour to two hours at the head of the, you know, from when you, the tide flattened out, you could fish in the, in that point and then they'd leave. So for us, it was difficult because we were limited by the tide and, you know, it, it clearly you wanted to do it at night. Um, so I think it, you know, it was a little bit tougher for us, whereas maybe some people, I, and I don't know if they set up further downstream and just truly dip, uh, it, it, it probably gives them a little more time. But we were constrained that way because we'd go all the way to head of tide where fresh was actually initially mixing with salt water. Um, it was just, it was fun doing it that way. You could see them a lot of the times and chase them a little bit more. That was father and son smelt fishermen Dick and Max Grimm sharing memories of good times fishing together with family and friends. In our final clip today from Sean Beauregard's Smelt and Tom Cod fishing interviews, we hear from Lawrence Moffat, a retired commercial lobsterman who spent his free time in the 1970s spearing Tom Cod with friends. This interview was conducted during the summer of 2021 outside by a smelt stream so there's a little wind and water noise, but we couldn't resist sharing this short little clip about the smelt fisherman's sweet spot, right where the rising tide flushes into the fresh water at night. Typically, there's a thing called a three-tine frog spear, 
and they used to mm -hmm. sell them in the hardware stores around. They're just the lightest type yeah, of metal spear. Yeah. Just three pieces of wire with a barb mm -hmm. on the end. And we would put them on the end of a four-foot oak lath, okay. typically, to make a very simple spear. And the, um, they, if you can map out when they're going to come by looking at a, at a lunar calendar and by looking at a tide calendar. And they typically, um, they live nearby in the salt water all year long and on the high tide after dark usually around here it was the week after Christmas and sometimes into the middle of January mm -hmm. they would run up at the very peak of the high tide they would come right where cold water from a stream was meeting the relatively warm salt water okay. and right at that point where those two types of water would meet, they would spawn. Hmm. Interesting. And um, it used to be so cold around here that when they would spawn a lot of years, that surface of the water where those two bodies of water would meet would be covered with ice. And, gotcha. and so the deal was, is you you sneak up, so you'd know the pool, you'd know the place where the two bodies of water met. And it, the tide moves a lot during the tidal cycle, so you have, you know, that the elevation of the high tide varies a lot during the month. Yeah. So you'd get right when the highest part of the tidal cycle would meet the brook, and we'd learn the pools and the different brooks where um, that activity would take place. Mm -hmm. And then if you knew the right spot, even if it was covered ice, you could make a hole in the ice and just start spearing <laughs> through the hole in the ice yeah. and come up with fish. Right. And so what we would do is a bunch of us would go out and we would um, sneak up and surround one of these pools very silently and everybody would have a spear in one hand and a real, really powerful flashlight in the other. And then we'd go, um, most everybody ready and be really quiet and sneaky and do it in the dark and surround the pool. Yeah. Okay, everybody ready? On the count of three. One, two, three, and then everybody click on their flashlight at the same time. <laughs> And I have seen it so that there was a ball of um, tomcod spawning the yeah. size of a basketball in the water. There would be several hundred of them just swirling in a mass wow. right exactly where the cold stream water and the warm ocean <laughs> water met. Interesting. And, and then as soon as you turn your lights on and start disturbing them, they dissipate and they go back into the ocean. Right. And then what we... That last clip was retired lobsterman Lawrence Moffat talking about spearing tomcod. You heard a lot of voices today, and we're incredibly grateful to all of them for sharing their stories. Starting at the top, the people you heard were Chris Johnson, the ecology manager for the Passamaquoddy Tribe Sapayak Environmental Department, Danielle Frechette, a marine resource scientist with Maine Department of Marine Resources, Bureau of Sea Run Fisheries and Habitat. Frechette helped introduce the interview project that Sean Beauregard, a student at the University of Maine, carried out last summer to document fisheries history and local knowledge about the state's rainbow smelt and tomcod fisheries. The five remaining voices on today's show came from that interview collection, including John Melquist Sr. from South Thomaston, who started smelt fishing as a kid before the 1970s, Kurt Sonneson, a retired coastal warden and marine patrol officer who covered the coast over the years from Booth Bay Harbor to Gouldsboro, 
Sharon Marill from Damascotta Mills, an outdoors woman and wildlife watcher. Dick and Max Grimm, our father-son duo from Yarmouth who dipped for smelt together many years ago. And last up was Lawrence Moffat, the retired commercial lobsterman who spent his free time in the 1970s spearing tomcod with friends. Thanks to everyone who was interviewed, and special thanks to Sean Beauregard for his tireless efforts to capture these great stories. Thanks also to Justin Stevens of Maine Sea Grant, and of course to Danielle Frechette of the Maine Department of Marine Resources for all their help with compiling this episode of Coastal Conversations. It was great to work together on this project and to support Sean together in capturing all of these stories starting over a year ago. Finally, to all our listeners out there, spring and early summer is the time to seek out sea-run fish in our rivers and streams. So get out there and enjoy. The fish will likely still be running for a week or two. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good